You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Many of you know that in about a week, I'm going up to um, compete in a board game tournament up in Estes Park, which I'm pretty excited about. I'm playing the game of Go. But this morning, I want to talk to you about a board game I've never played. I have never played the game of diplomacy, but I am fascinated by its reputation as a relationship killer. We tend to think of board games as maybe something to invite your friends and your family to as a night of bonding around the table, but there is many a friendship that has fallen to a game of diplomacy. The issue is with the way that the game is played. So it's a game that is set in World War II where you're these different powers vying for supremacy over Europe, um, which might sound familiar to some of you, but unlike Risk, there is no randomness to decide who wins each territory. It's completely not random. Whoever moves the most troops into a given area is going to win that territory. So how then do you compete and like have some sense of, of wondering who's going to win? Well, there's two things that are key to the game. The first is that everybody writes down their moves at the same time. So you don't get to see what somebody else has done before you make your decision. All the moves are going to happen at the same time. But the real key to the game is that before you make those moves, you get to have a private conversation with every other player in the game. You can step away from the table and talk to them. And you can make alliances. And they can promise that they are going to send their troops into the same place as you while they are your allies. And therefore, you will end up winning rather than losing your troops because you have an alliance, a friend here with you in this space. But there is nothing in the rules that says that you have to actually do what you have promised. And so this is a long game. It takes... It can take potentially all day, but somewhere in the course of that day of negotiations and deciding how you're going to move, there comes a moment where most people realize that their best chance of winning the game is to betray their friend, that they can not follow up on the promises that they said. And this is why diplomacy hurts relationships, because every friendship is built upon trust. Every relationship, the foundation of that relationship is trust. And even when it's in the context of a game, to have someone whom you thought you could trust betray you and turn away from you is hard. And this is true, really, no matter what kind of relationship we're talking about. Not only friendships are founded upon trust. Marriage, if you're going to have productive conversations with your spouse, you have to actually trust them as you are speaking to them. You have to believe that you both have the best interests of your relationship at, in, in your heart, that that's what your desire is. You have to believe that what they say is what they mean. And even when they fail sometimes to follow up on that, you have to be able to have mercy and forgiveness and trust that they are going to try again. It's true of the church. A church where trust breaks down will not long survive. It's true of our society as a whole. Part of the problems we have with political conversations in our country right now, the heart of the problem is a lack of trust, where two people can be speaking to one another and one person won't even believe that they believe what they're saying. 
They'll think that they are using it to manipulate, to, to gain things for their own ends. They don't believe that, that they have the best interests of a nation at heart. And so there is a lack of trust. Trust is the foundation of every relationship. Trust is the foundation of those who would like to work together. And this is why when Jesus' disciples ask him how to pray, everything about the prayer that he teaches them points them to trust in God. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 11, which is where this version of the Lord's Prayer is found. It's a little bit different than the one that we say on Sunday mornings that we'll say a little bit later on. Um, the one that we usually uh, say in corporate worship comes from the book of Matthew. Luke's prayer doesn't have quite all of the lines, but it has the same basic structure, the same foundation. And it begins, of course, the same way as that prayer in Matthew. In verse 2, when he's teaching them how to pray, he tells them to begin by saying, Father. And this itself is a term, the way that we address God in this prayer is pointing us towards a relationship of trust. It's pointing his disciples to remember that they have a particular intimacy with God when they come and speak to him, that they should come to him in the same way that they would trust their own father in a, in a relationship. This is unique to Jesus at this period in time. There are places in the Old Testament where God is called Father. But they almost always refer to God as the Father of the nation of Israel. It's seen as a corporate thing. And nowhere in the Old Testament is God addressed as Father. Where we have the encouragement to have the, the boldness to come before Him and call Him not Lord, not Master, not Holy God. We call Him Father. And as we call him by this name, we are setting the tone of our prayer. We're setting the tone that says, I'm coming to you as one with whom I may have intimate relationship, one whom I may trust. And as the prayer continues, it says, hallowed be your name. This is, uh, continues, it reminds us that God is not only Father, he also is God. That what we seek for and ask for is his glory. We seek for and ask that his name would be known. We, we come to him in praise. But even as we do that, prayer is this time where we are expressing the desires of our heart. And as we tune our heart to seek for the glory of God, there's an element of trust that comes in that. Because by instinct, most of us, our desire is to say, glorify me. Do something for me. Make me happier. Make me more content increase my fame or my wealth. And instead we come here and we say, it is not only right to say hallowed be your name, it is good to say hallowed be your name because we believe that where God is glorified, that this is good for us and it is good for all people. Because God himself is good. We cannot honestly speak hallowed be your name if we don't have a sense of trust. And that feeling is amplified in the next petition where it says your kingdom come. Jesus, throughout his life and his ministry, the kingdom, the coming kingdom, was at the heart of his proclamation. It was the heart of the gospel, of the good news that he had to bring to the world, is that God's kingdom is here. 
God who reigns over all the universe, but that reign is becoming apparent in this moment. It's becoming evident, and we are seeing the reign of God breaking through. And this is why we see Jesus healing people. This is why we have him offering the forgiveness of sins. It's because God's reign is breaking through. It's why he's able to reach out beyond just the ethnic national Israelites and bring in others and say, you too can listen, come follow me, because God's reign is breaking through. And wherever God's reign breaks through, justice is done. The poor are healed, the sick are, are get better, the, the lame walk, the blind see. And so when we ask and we petition, your kingdom come, again, we are asking for something that fundamentally says, I want to live, I want to be in a place where God's kingdom is evident, where his reign is evident. I want to live in the kingdom of heaven because this is good. And that can only be true if I trust God. There's all sorts of fiction that is told about gods who are capricious, who you never are certain what they want, where they are vying against one another. You can look all the way back to the ancient Greek epics. And when I read the stories of Greek mythology, do I really want to live in the kingdom of Zeus? Do I want to live in the kingdom of Ares or Hades? Are they trustworthy? Not really. But God that we serve is worthy of our trust. The coming kingdom is good for us. He says, give us each day our daily bread. And on just a surface level of reading this into English, it speaks to the fact that we come to God not only with our, our praise, we don't only ask for his kingdom to come and sort of in a, in a reign that perhaps is going to, to be breaking in for quite some time. We also come to him with our daily needs and we trust him. That trust is something that we come every single day. Give me today my daily bread. In the Greek here, that's even more than that in a way. It's actually one of the, the word that's translated daily, both here in Luke and in Matthew's um, Lord's Prayer. It's the only places that it occurs in any Greek literature. There are other words for daily, but the one that they use here, it only occurs in these two prayers. And all the way back to very early in the church, they're not quite certain what it means. Because there are other Greek words they could have used if they just really meant every day. And... They, are, they try to come up with sort of etymologies of how this word came to be. Um, and the heart of it, though, is that there is something going on here that is pointing beyond just my physical needs. It's pointing to some greater need that I have that will also be satisfied if I come to God. And I think one of the best ways to understand it is seeing this as a reference pointing us back and remembering the bread that came from heaven um, in manna as the Israelites were wandering in the desert where they were called to go out into the wilderness and trust that God was going to provide them with supernatural food that would sustain them. And then Jesus, in his ministry, was walking through the earth, and he said, I am the bread. I am what you really need. I will satisfy you in a way that nothing else will. And this is not not talking about our physical needs, but it's also not limited only to our physical needs. It's pointing us beyond that, trusting God for the very essence of what we need for life and saying, I will ask you each day for this. 
And even coming back and asking over and over again, it points to a continued dependence. It's not something I can ask once and then God gives it to me and then I'm good to go. I have to trust him anew each and every day to provide what I need, not only for my physical well-being, but for the, the sustenance of my very life, of my heart, of my soul. This is what God offers and tells us, ask me for this because I want to give it to you. But we won't ask him for those things that we need unless we trust him. And then he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us, as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And then that request too requires vulnerability and trust because we're coming to God as those who are in need of mercy. We're coming to God not as those who have been cleaned up, who have, have everything all right together. We're coming Him as to those who are not holy, but we are approaching a holy God and we are saying, will you forgive us? And we trust Him to say yes. We trust Him that He will forgive us and we trust Him enough even to forgive those who have wronged us, which sometimes takes a great deal of trust because we have to believe that the justice of God will be done, that I don't have to go and seek revenge because God will set things right. Sometimes that setting things right might be to change the heart of the one who has hurt me, in which case I have to trust him with their forgiveness as well. Sometimes it might be that he will bring judgment upon them, but I don't seek after that myself. I trust that in God's hands to seek our own forgiveness and to forgive others. Both of these depend upon trust in God, that He is good, that He is just, that He will do what needs to be done to set things right. And that He is merciful, that we can come to Him with our whole selves in prayer and know that He is one who will forgive us. And we ask Him as well, lead us not into temptation. We don't need trials to prove ourselves as some sort of super spiritual Christians. We don't need to walk through the fire so that I can come out and earn some sort of merit before God. There's no chance of me earning that merit anyway. We trust Him in His mercy to lead us where we need to be. And if we look at the rest of the New Testament as well, where Paul promises you will not be given trials beyond what you can bear, when we ask this question, lead us not into temptation, we are also asking and trusting that God will not take us to situations that we cannot endure by depending upon Him. And that means if we are called to suffer, we know that it is a suffering that God has foreseen and we trust that He will see us through it. Many of the apostles who listened to him in this prayer were called to their death. But they did so trusting God regardless. That even though circumstances seemed bleak, that they may not see a way out, they knew that he was trustworthy and he would hold them to the very end. Everything about that prayer that the Lord taught his disciples is teaching them, trust God. Trust is the foundation of prayer. Bring your entire self before him. Trust his mercy. Trust his goodness. Trust his justice. Seek the things that God seeks 
and know that they will ultimately be what satisfies your heart. They are what is good for you. And then he emphasizes this with two parables. The first one is a parable about persistence. A man has received a traveler in the middle of the night. It was not terribly uncommon in that area to travel at night. You have all endured the heat over this last week, and you can understand that trying to maybe take a long walk journey in the middle of, of the beating sun would not be the best thing, so people would sometimes travel at night to avoid that, that beating sun. And this person has received a traveler who's gotten there late at night when everyone is already in bed. But there is a sacred commitment of hospitality in the, that Near Eastern culture where they are supposed to welcome their guests even though they've arrived at midnight. But they find that they have nothing in their cupboard. So they go to a friend and say, can I borrow something to, to give to my guest who has come? I need to fulfill this obligation of hospitality. I need something from you. And they knock on the door. And oftentimes, people, families would sleep where they would all be sort of on the same platform. So there's no way for this friend to get up without stepping over his children and his wife, waking them up. And if you have kids, you know that once the kids are awake, getting everybody to settle back down and go back to sleep, this could be a long process. And he says, no, don't bother me. And Jesus says, but if he keeps being persistent, eventually he's going to give him what he needs just to make him go away. And sometimes we hear this and we think that this is telling us something about the character of God, that, that we have to kind of beat on his door until he gives us something so that we'll go away. But what God is saying, if your friend who has no particular regard for you in that moment your friend who's annoyed and irritated at you for coming and asking will give you the good thing that you need. Will not God, who is not irritated, who has perfect patience, who is delighted to hear from his children, will he not give to you what you need when you ask? And he does call us to persistence, but it's persistence that itself is rooted in a trust of God. Both of these parables are saying, you're wicked, you, you don't have the goodness of God, and yet still you'll do this. You grow impatient with people, and yet still you'll eventually give in to their requests just to, to make them stop bothering you. Wouldn't God, who doesn't feel that way towards you, wouldn't God, who loves you, wouldn't God, who is good, wouldn't God, who is infinitely patient and wise, won't he give you what you need? Doesn't that mean you can keep asking? You can be persistent because you know that he understands your needs and that he will meet them because he's good. And he tells another story reminding us the same sort of thing. He says, which of you as a father, if your child asks you for a um, piece of bread, is going to give them a serpent instead? Ask for a fish child asks for a fish, who's going to give them a serpent? Or they ask for an egg, are you going to give them a scorpion? You know how to give good gifts. You know what your children actually need. You're not going to fool them with something awful that you give them. What about God? Will he not give you what you really need? And it's interesting here, and when Matthew tells of this particular parable, he says, won't God give you good gifts? When Luke tells it, he says, will not God give you the Holy Spirit? points us here to how God knows what we really need, 
even when we ask for, for something that is lesser, something that is smaller. God gives us the gift of his spirit, the ultimate good gift, the gift that leads us into salvation, the gift that meets our, our desires, the gift that, that really draws us into further relationship with him. This is the God that we have. This is the God that we can trust because he gives good gifts and he knows what those good gifts are. He knows what you need. The foundation of our prayer life is trust in God. And I think that most of us who struggle with our prayer life also struggle with trust in God. We come up with all sorts of reasons why we think that we're struggling with prayer. We're busy. It's hard to find time during the day. I'm tired too tired to do it at night. I don't know what to say or what to ask for. I've asked for a long time and haven't seen the things that I'm asking for. And I think with all of these reasons, and some of them obviously impact our prayer life, but for all of these things, I think at the heart of all of them is a lack of trust. Because if you believe that there is a good God who is listening to you, who desires to give you that which you need, who knows your very deepest needs, who has invited you to come before Him as you are, and you do not speak to Him, probably because of a lack of trust. Either you don't think he's really going to give you good things if you ask. And so you just stop asking because you don't trust his goodness. You've mistaken the patience for God for a hardness of hearing. God is patient and he wants you to keep asking so that he can draw you into his character. But no, God is, is listening in his patience Yes, God is listening in his patience. God is listening in his patience. He's, he hasn't failed to hear us. Or we have our own sense of shame. We're afraid that we've got to get ourselves cleaned up. I've got to find either the right words to say. I've got to, I've got to get my sin taken care of before I can go to God. I can't go with him with really all of the mess that I am and ask him, forgive me my sins. I've got to, I've got to get rid of some of those first because it's too much right now. And so we wait and we hold off on our prayer life. We avoid God because we know that when we come to him, we will be convicted of our sins if he gives us his Holy Spirit. And so we just stay away. But we don't trust because what he's giving us is good. Do you trust God enough to bring all that you are to him? Do you trust him enough to bear the desires of your heart to him? To not try to find fancy words, but to just ask for what you need. Do you trust his timing where when you don't see the answer that you've asked for, you are patient and wait for God? Do you trust him? So if we want to be a people who pray well, we have to grow in trust. We have to learn to trust our father who calls us to himself. are many ways that we can grow in trust. One of them is by spending more time in God's Word, meditating on the promises that He makes, 
looking at the story of salvation, understanding what He has already done for us, hearing the good news over and over again, and remembering that this is a good gift that God has given to me. I have participation in this life that He has offered. He has given me eternal life. Why would He withhold anything from me that I really need? And I can grow in trust. We can also practice gratitude in our own lives. As we thank God for the gifts that we have received, we start to realize how much He has given us. We start to see a pattern of trust about how God has been with me in the times that are hard and in the times that are good. As I look and I give thanks for Him, as I bring my heart before Him and and come to Him with gratitude, I grow in trust. We tell stories of what God has done in our life. Stories of how God has been faithful, and we listen to the stories of others. As a church, this is part of what we are called to do when we gather together, is we tell the stories of God's faithfulness to Him so that we can grow in trust in God our Father and how He is working among us. He is here. Is Christ among us? Then let us act like it. Tell the stories of what He has done. And we pray. We come to God, bringing Him our whole self. We come with our mess, not trying to clean ourselves up. And we find out that we have a God who welcomes us as children. And as we make that practice of coming to Him, even when we are frightened, even when our trust falters, will grow in trust. We'll find that He welcomes us, that He forgives us, that He sustains us and gives us life. And so I encourage you to practice trust, to work on growing in trust. This is the heart of what God has called us to. We've seen many times uh, as we've looked at the scriptures that when God talks about faith being necessary to be uh, to come into relationship with him, that faith being necessary for salvation, he's not just talking about belief in something. It's not just a belief that Jesus is Lord. It is trust in Jesus as Lord. The heart of faith is a heart of trust. This is what we are called to as God's people. We must trust God. But we can grow in trust because even in that, He is merciful to us. So go to your Father. Meditate on His promises. Remember what He has done for you. Pray your true heart before Him. Give thanks for what He has done. And grow in trust so that you can pray like Jesus prayed. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.